If you have your Bibles with you, do keep them open there at uh, Jeremiah. We're looking at uh, this section from chapters 46 through to 52 today. And uh, as we prepare to hear from God's Word, let's pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your Word. We thank you that in your Word, the Bible, you teach us uh, all we need to know about yourself. You teach us all we need to know about ourselves. You teach us all we need to know about uh, how to be saved from sin and to live as your people. Help us in this, we ask, uh, help us to understand what we read this morning and help us to be encouraged by it, help us to grow as your people uh, because of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. History is full of people who've wanted to rule the world, people who've wanted nothing more than to be able to throw their arms wide and yell at the top of their lungs, I'm the king of the world. Uh, a few names come to mind, Genghis Khan, uh, Alexander the Great, any number of the Roman Caesars, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, and of course, Leonardo DiCaprio on the Titanic. Uh, I'm not sure if that last one's actually that valid. Uh, but when it comes to the desire to rule and dominate the world, history is littered with those who wanted to claim the title or who actually claimed the title even when they didn't really quite rule the world. Uh, this is particularly true in the time of Jeremiah. The kings of the Assyrian Empire, that empire that took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, uh, the, these kings had the title applied to them, king of the universe. Uh, many of the kings of the Babylonian Empire that followed, uh, they dropped that title officially but still used it at times, including the king who finally defeated Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was apparently known as king of the universe in uh, certain uh, economic documents of the time. Our pride as humans can be extraordinary. Uh, it can lead us to make some outrageous claims, give ourselves outrageous titles. But as we've been learning in the book of Jeremiah, and as we see very clearly here in the final chapters of the book, there is only one king of the whole world, uh, and he's not any of the kings of the nations throughout history. In fact, he is the king over all the nations. He is God. Uh, the final chapters of Jeremiah outline God's judgment of the nations. We've seen very clearly multiple times God's judgment of Judah, uh, his own people for their sin, and now as the book ends, we see God's justice is entirely fair and equitable. All nations are judged for their sin, and God is the judge because God is the king. Or as Jeremiah puts it in several times, uh, several times in these chapters, he is the king whose name is the Lord Almighty. Uh, that's the same title used in uh, the hymn we sang earlier, The Lord Almighty is the Lord Sabaoth, uh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Nations assert their dominance by power and force, and these chapters in Jeremiah show that there's no power or force greater than God. Uh, all the nations immediately surrounding Judah and several nations further afield are included in the description of God's judgment and conquest here. In these final chapters of Jeremiah, we see that God's word in Jeremiah is a word of judgment for all the nations. Uh, this is the word Jeremiah was appointed to speak way back in chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, see, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. 
Jeremiah is appointed over the nations because God's word is over the nations and Jeremiah is appointed to speak God's word. Uh, And a key reason for God's judgment, as we'll see, is, is the pride and arrogance of the nations. They set themselves against God or his people. They blindly worship idols, false gods, and they suffer in due course the consequences for that, consequences which they're powerless to stand against. Now we see this judgment of the nations described over several chapters from chapter 46. Uh, Chapter 46 uh, is all about Egypt. Uh, Chapter 46, verses 7 to 10. uh, Follow along with me here and see God quelling the pride of Egypt here. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers of surging waters. She says... I will rise and cover the earth. I will destroy cities and their people. Charge, you horses. Drive furiously, you charioteers. March on, you warriors, men of Cush and Putz who carry shields, men of Lydia who draw the bow. But that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance, for vengeance on his foes. The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. For the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will offer sacrifice, in the, uh, offer sacrifice in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. Uh, crushing judgment from God. Uh, also a faint note of hope. Chapter 46, verses 25 to 26. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, I am about to bring punishment on Ammon, God of Thebes, on Pharaoh, on Egypt and her gods and her kings, and on those who rely on Pharaoh. I will give them into the hands of those who want to kill them, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Later, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in times past, declares the Lord. The the sorrow of judgment there, but also that that note of of hope beyond judgment. Uh, In chapter 47, it's the Philistines' turn. Uh, Moab in chapter 48 Uh, which receives the longest description of God's judgment apart from Babylon in these chapters. Uh, Chapter 48, verses 29 to 30. We have heard of Moab's pride. How great is her arrogance of her insolence, her pride, her conceit and the haughtiness of her heart. I know her insolence, but it is futile, declares the Lord, and her boasts accomplish nothing. Chapter 49, we see several shorter Descriptions of judgment are a list of uh, perhaps lesser known uh, nations. Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar and Hazor, Elam. Uh, Again, as you read through chapter 49, it's about the pride or the idolatry of of the nations or or it's about the fact that they've mistreated God's people Israel. Uh, And at times there's also that positive note that God will restore their fortunes, there will be inhabitants in them. Again, and, and at times there isn't that positive note. And then we get to the judgment of Babylon in chapters 50 and 51. Uh, this long description has clear pointers to the return from exile for God's people. Uh, chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. In those days at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion and turn their faces toward it. They will come and bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Uh, We were told uh, earlier 
back in chapter 31, of this covenant, this new covenant God will make with his people. Uh, There's a real uh, reversal of fortunes here as the ones who were judged and exiled will be released from their captives so that the captors can be judged in turn. God's people are to flee Babylon in order to avoid the judgment that's coming to Babylon. Uh, Chapter 50, verses 8 to 10. Flee out of Babylon, leave the land of the Babylonians and be like the goats that lead the flock. For I will stir up and bring against Babylon an alliance of great nations from the land of the north. They will take up their positions against her and from the north she will be captured. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty handed. So Babylonia will be plundered. All who plunder her will have their fill, declares the Lord. Uh, And why? Why will Babylon be so thoroughly punished by God? Well, chapter 50, verses 11 and 12. Because you rejoice and are glad, you who pillage my inheritance. Because you frolic like a heifer thrashing thrashing grain and neigh like stallions. Your mother will be greatly ashamed. She who gave you birth will be disgraced. She will be the least of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, a desert. Although they actually serve God in dealing out punishment to Judah, the only thought in their mind was for their own pleasure in conquering. (laughs) You rejoice and are glad, you who pillage my inheritance. The the pride and arrogance of Babylon uh, are emphasized further down, chapter 50, verses 31 to 32. See, I am against you, you arrogant one, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty, for your day has come. The time for you to be punished. The arrogant one will stumble and fall and no one will help her up. I will kindle a fire in her towns that will consume all who are around her. And uh, who is responsible uh, for the judgment of this nation that held such power? Uh, Well, it's the Redeemer of Israel. Chapter 50, verses 33 and 34. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The people of Israel are oppressed and the people of Judah as well. All their captors hold them fast, refusing to let them go. Yet their Redeemer is strong. The Lord Almighty is his name. He will vigorously defend their cause so that he may bring rest to their land, but unrest to those who live in Babylon. See, despite their punishment and exile, Israel haven't been forsaken Uh, Chapter 51, verse 5, For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord Almighty, though their land is full of guilt before the Holy One of Israel. Uh, Their God will save them. Chapter 51, verse 24, Before your eyes I will repay Babylon and all who live in Babylonia for all the wrong they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. And God will punish Babylon as he has used Babylon to punish others. Chapter 51, verse 49, Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain, just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. God is the King, the Lord Almighty, King of the nations. Look at the way the finality of God's judgment is described as we come uh, to the end of these two chapters describing the, the judgment of Babylon. Chapter 51, verses 54 to 57, the sound of a cry comes from Babylon, the sound of great destruction from the land of the Babylonians. The Lord will destroy Babylon. He will silence her noisy din. 
Waves of enemies will rage like great waters. The roar of their voices will resound. A destroyer will come against Babylon. Her warriors will be captured and their bows will be broken. For the Lord is a God of retribution. He will repay in full. I will make her officials and wise men drunk, her governors, officers and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty. Now these two uh, chapters uh, about the judgment of Babylon, this, this message, comes at the, the end of the book of Jeremiah, but it was actually written much earlier and sent to Babylon in between the first deportation and the final destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, the messenger was to go to Babylon and to read the scroll, pronounce that Babylon would become desolate. And then he was to throw the scroll in the Euphrates, tied to a rock, symbolizing the fact that Babylon would sink and rise no more. Now, who knows what people thought at the time that scroll was first read, delivered. Uh, Certainly the exiles reading the scroll in future years would find it, I hope, an encouraging end to Jeremiah's book. After all the description of God's judgment of his own people, here is a description of God's judgment of their enemies. But it's a message that goes far wider, too, than just the judgment of Babylon, uh, just the judgment of one nation. Uh, throughout the Bible, we see f- similar descriptions, often using the name Babylon to show God's sovereignty over the nations, his, his judgment of all who stand in arrogant opposition to him, and which show, would show his victory of returning life and hope to his often beleaguered people. Uh, Revelation is a book where we see God's victory in uh, cosmic, universal terms. And Revelation 18 uh, repeats a lot of similar material to Jeremiah 50 and 51. Uh, as we see there, the judgment of God broadened to, a, to be a, a universal, supernatural victory. Uh, have a look at Revelation 18 verse 2. Uh, Revelation 18, verse 2, where we, we hear the voice of an angel describing God's victory. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. God will cause the fall of this Babylon, which is opposed to him in every way, and God says, to his people come out of Babylon, as he did to the exiles of Judah, concerning the judgment of Babylon. Uh, escape the coming judgment, he says, Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you not, will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done, poor her a double portion from her own cup. There's a power that focuses on earthly rule in opposition to God's rule, uh, and which itself is really a facade for the the supernatural powers of evil. Uh, And that self-indulgent power will be consumed, will be judged, and those who see will mourn for her just as they did for the Uh, earthly city of Babylon, Revelation 18, verse 10. Terrified at her torment, they will 
Stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. But their mourning is in vain because God is all-powerful. Revelation 18, verse 21, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down never to be found again. Now, as the Apostle John is receiving uh, this vision and, and John's readers are reading what he has written down here to John's readers, this, this would have represented uh, the city of Rome, uh, most likely for readers of the Bible and, and for readers of Revelation in any time and place, though, uh, Babylon represents broadly the, the, the power in, in cities, societies and cultures throughout time that, that set themselves up in opposition to God, to powers that persecute God's people, all the while unwittingly serving Satan, the enemy of God. That's where this power comes from and the, the Babylon described uh, is that universal, uh, of, of, of universal and cosmic significance. Uh, we see this uh, throughout the Bible, different descriptions of this kind of opposition to God. Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is an example. Uh, Babel was the, the center of world opposition to God. Uh, it was in Babel that men decided to build a tower to heaven so they could make a name for themselves, all the while uh, ignoring God's command to spread out and fill the earth. And then, of course, there's the Babylon we're familiar with in Jeremiah, capital of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, destination for the exiled Israelites after Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. Bound for the same end, this Babylon, because of its opposition to God. And even at times we see Jerusalem described in similar ways. It takes on a number of the same characteristics and it is destroyed and its people exiled, as we see in Jeremiah because of their pride and idolatry, because of their opposition to God and his prophets. That's why Judah was punished. What's described of Babylon the Great in Revelation and what is finally uh, judged by God here and laid waste can be seen to be true to varying degrees of any great city or culture or human society where the Value is placed on indulgence and wealth where rulers rise up to say, I'm the king of the world, and where the rule of God is opposed and his people persecuted. And so empires, earthly empires, rise and fall. Uh, everything Jeremiah says in chapters 50 and 51 came true. Where is Babylon today, that great capital of King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? Well, it's apparently not much more than a village in the desert. It was once the center of a mighty empire, the Greek Empire built by Alexander the Great. It was overtaken by Rome, but is Rome the center of a worldwide empire today? No, it's a place we go to admire the relics of past empires. Uh, did Napoleon create an empire that we still live in today? No man has ever truly been able to say, I am the king of the world. Empires rise and fall, and a Christian view of the world tells us that's not where true power lies. Jeremiah 46 to 51 uh, and Revelation 18 and uh, so many other parts of the Bible tell us about God's judgment on, 
all human power that sets itself up in opposition to God because it's ultimately serving a power that is in constant opposition to God and which God has, uh, has and will one day do away with forever. God's word tells us that God is sovereign and almighty, the power above all earthly powers and even above the power of sin and death wielded by Satan himself. Uh, God is sovereign over all the nations. This is God's world. And this knowledge, knowing this, is the foundation for the Christian life today. It's the foundation for all Christian life and witness, all missionary endeavor, all efforts to share the gospel and to make disciples in the world. Remember Jeremiah uh, was told he would have authority over nations and kingdoms by virtue of the authority in the words of God that God put in his mouth. And in God's wider plan, uh, Jesus himself would be God's very word to us and he would have all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28 verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Some of Jesus' final words to his disciples. Uh, With this foundation of authority over all the earth, over all nations, we as God's people today... We have the authority to go and preach the gospel, the truth of both God's judgment and salvation. As Christians today, his disciples, Jesus commissions us for a task, a commission and a task that that flows down the line for all disciples of Jesus throughout time. Uh, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, Jesus can give such a command because God is sovereign over all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That we go and make disciples by preaching God's word by sharing the gospel. And that must include the news of both judgment and salvation. You can't preach the salvation that God brings without preaching his judgment of sin. Uh, Jeremiah's commission was to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Great judgment and destruction must come before the rebuilding can begin. God deals, must deal with the sin and rebellion of his people before he plants a new work and rebuilds them again. Uh, So we know that judgment must be part of what we preach, as unpalatable as it might sound, as poorly received as it might be. uh, Judgment must be part of what we preach as we share the gospel. We saw at the start of our series a couple of months ago in Lamentations 1 to 3, the way that God's judgment of sin became the seedbed of hope for his people. Judgment is a precursor, a necessary first step in God's plan of salvation. The book of Jeremiah gives us a pretty stark picture of the judgment of God for sin, a judgment that no nation or people will escape. Uh, There's great sorrow in judgment. 
But Jeremiah also points us to the very clear hope that God provides as he promises to give his people a new heart, make a new covenant as he brings his people back from exile, as he provides salvation for them. As sinful people, we need God to do for us what we can't do to make it possible to escape judgment and be saved. And that's what we see God do in Jesus. Uh, In Jesus, we see God's judgment of sin, his wrath on sin exhausted. In Jesus, God's wrath is turned away and gracious salvation is received. That's good news for people sitting under God's judgment for sin. Uh, Have a look at how the Apostle Paul puts it, Ephesians 2, verses 3 to 5. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I think in the end it's not such a difficult thing to preach judgment, to tell the the judgment part of salvation when we share the gospel because God's love causes him to divert his wrath. He still judges sin, but he takes that judgment on himself in his perfect son, Jesus. You can't preach the gospel without preaching judgment, but the good news is that that judgment is no longer ours if we are saved. That's why we call it good news. God is a God of grace. He brings us from sorrow to hope. He brings us from being under judgment to receiving salvation. He brings us into his kingdom, which is the only kingdom worth belonging to. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we share the gospel, uh, we must share the wonderful truths of both judgment and salvation. And we have a mandate to share the gospel because the God we serve is king of the world. He has authority over all the nations. Preaching both the judgment and salvation gives people hope. It's a hope that we see envisioned even in the days of the exile, even in the midst of God's destruction of Jerusalem. And in the descriptions of God's judgment of Babylon and the nations, there is still hope for God's people. Uh, Chapter 52 uh, of Jeremiah, uh, the final chapter, uh, comes after Jeremiah's final words. It it kind of adds to the end of uh, these words uh, from God, uh, the account of the destruction of Jerusalem. It kind of tacks it on to the end of the book. It's really... Uh, a copy of much of a couple of chapters of Kings, uh, and it it serves the serves to remind the readers as they finish reading this scroll of the historical reality, and also gives them another very tangible note of hope in the final verses as they see the the freeing of their foolish king Jehoiachin, who was given a seat of honor at the king's table in Babylon. Now, Jehoiachin will have no children to sit on the throne. 
but a Davidic king will come from Judah. God will fulfill the salvation he's promised and the people's hope, if they have hope, will turn out to be well-founded. God will make the new covenant that he promised. Uh, have a read of God's uh, promise again in Jeremiah 31. Follow along there, verses 33 and 34. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is wonderful promise from God. Hope beyond sorrow, salvation beyond judgment. Under the new covenant, the people's sins will be forgiven and they will truly know the Lord. They will live with him forever. Because he truly is the King, the Lord Almighty. Uh, in the book of Revelation, the passage we read earlier, uh, we see this described, Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of running waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. That's what we've been reading as we been reading Jeremiah. That's what we read whenever we read the Bible. God's true words, the true words of God, the true words of uh, the one who has power over all the world, the Lord Almighty, King of all the nations. His words can be trusted. He does have all power. And so we can be confident to go and preach uh, the judgment of sin, which has been satisfied by Jesus, and the salvation that is freely offered to all who follow him. We can do this uh, with confidence and with great joy as we look forward to being with our God in his kingdom forever. Uh, let's pray and give thanks to God. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are the King, the Lord Almighty. You are King of the nations, Lord of all the earth. You are our God and King and Saviour. We praise you that in your grace and mercy you do uh, judge sin. We praise you that you do so in such a way that we can be forgiven, that we can not be judged for our sin, but instead be saved and forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We praise you for this, Lord. We praise you for your righteousness and your mercy. Help us to live as people who follow you as king. Help us to live as people who love and serve you, uh, who follow your son Jesus and proclaim him in this world. Help us to do so boldly, knowing that you are king of all, all nations belong to you. 
And so help us to spread uh, your great word of salvation, your, the, the great gospel, your great promise of salvation to those who so desperately need it. Might we do so with boldness and joy. We pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.